experiencing debilitating failure. Often, in order to build up resilience and confidence, one has to hit rock bottom before they can bounce back and reach their full potential. And besides, America loves an underdog, right? It seems impossible to think of today's subject as an underdog now. His image and legacy literally towers over the United States of America. Our capital is named for him, as is a state, several cities and counties, roads, buildings, and schools, not to mention the currency he appears on, the mountain his face is chiseled into, and the soaring D.C. memorial that bears his name. But in the winter of 1777, this future Superman of American mythology looked like he was on his way out. Though the recent victory at Saratoga was a huge boost for the reeling Continental Army, it didn't exactly pay dividends to the general. After all, he never quite managed to score a victory of that magnitude. So after the British surrendered in upstate New York, voices began to rise, demanding that the weak general be replaced. Worse than that, though, was the depletion of his army, lost to frigid temperatures, exposure, starvation, disease, and desertion. It may have seemed like an impossible situation to most, But to this man, whose back was firmly against the wall, he was in perfect position. His name is George Washington, and this is Rebellion. the type of order and discipline that Washington was seeking, which was so hard to come by when leading an army of disheartened soldiers, tired of retreating, surviving on scraps of food and strips of clothing, while receiving little pay. In the fall of 1777, a reverend named Henry Mullenberg entered his church to perform the burial rites for a recently deceased child. When he entered the church, he found a group of Washington soldiers desecrating it. He described what he saw, writing that they, quote, had placed the objects of their gluttony on the altar. In short, I saw in miniature the abomination of desolation in the temple. To say the least, the Continental Army was in dire need of discipline and guidance. Two arrivals offered the changes Washington so desperately sought. One was German officer Baron von Steuben, who drilled the army soldiers day in and day out, turning those sloppy troops into regiments of professional soldiers. The other was the arrival of the French Navy. France 
who had formed a cold alliance with the Americans by supplying them with the majority of their guns and ammo, decided to send aid in the form of 12,000 soldiers and 32,000 sailors. The alliance was formed in part thanks to the successful lobbying of Benjamin Franklin and Silas Dean. Other advocates were the Marquis de Lafayette, who had traveled to America and volunteered for Washington's army, quickly earning widespread acclaim and respect. Since proving his mettle, he had turned to France to push for more assistance. Once France heard about the American victory at Saratoga, they agreed that an alliance would be mutually beneficial to them in defeating their British rivals. That summer, coming off the momentum of the victory at Saratoga, and despite the horrid conditions endured at Valley Forge, the Americans pressed on with victory in sight for the first time since Boston. British General Sir Henry Clinton, whose forces had taken over the American capital of Philadelphia, sending the members of Congress and many of its citizens fleeing, was ordered to evacuate. His orders came as a response to the French entering the war. Since New York City was such a strategic stronghold, the British knew that it would need reinforcements to protect it. Washington, however, wanted to take advantage of the evacuation. He ordered stalling tactics as the 11,000 British and Hessian soldiers began their 100-mile trek to Manhattan. American troops placed obstacles in the roads, burned bridges, and destroyed wells between Philadelphia and New York, making the already arduous journey even more difficult. In June of 1778, Washington devised a plan to send 4,000 soldiers to attack the British lines. He originally chose Major General Charles Lee to lead the attack. But Lee turned it down because he lacked confidence in the plan. Instead, Washington handed it over to the 21-year-old Lafayette. When Lee, a veteran military officer, heard about this, he changed his mind and accepted the post. It was a decision that would eventually end his military career. Reports indicate that Lee's orders were shoddy and his attack disorganized. The British performed a counterattack that quickly put the American forces on their heels. Lee, overwhelmed by the enemy, ordered a retreat. When Washington arrived, he was shocked, never having received word of any retreat order. Lee and Washington entered into a fiery confrontation when they crossed paths on the battlefield. In the end, Washington relieved Lee of his command, handing it over to Lafayette. Then, Washington personally rallied Lee's remaining troops to re-engage the enemy. The battle wore on into the night when it finally ended in a draw. Overnight, the British slipped through Washington's fingers as they continued their retreat through the evening darkness and safely arrived in New York. For the Americans, it was the last major battle fought in the Northern Theater for the remainder of the war. It was also some of the last action George Washington would see, as the fighting moved mostly to the southern colonies. 
the forces led by Washington in the North would sit in stalemate with the British, who continued to control New York. It was in the summer of 1778 that Washington established the Culper Ring, a network of spies who worked to gather secret information in British-controlled New York. That network provided invaluable intel for Washington. And, thanks to the work of people like Hercules Mulligan and his slave Cato, saved his life a time or two. Despite the fact that the fighting was largely over with for Washington, he by no means had an easy time in those years. In 1780, command of the fort at West Point in southern New York was given to Benedict Arnold. Washington greatly admired Arnold's spirit and skill on the battlefield, describing him as a fighting general. Arnold's military career was the stuff of legend, leading a tiny fleet of hastily made boats against the massive British Navy on Lake Champlain, capturing Fort Ticonderoga, attacking Quebec City, and leading the Americans to victory at Saratoga. The last of those two accomplishments severely damaged his leg, leaving it lodged with bone splinters for the rest of his life. Despite his heroics, Arnold had been passed over for promotions, denied credit for various courageous deeds and key victories, and had become embroiled in a financial scandal while in charge of the newly evacuated city of Philadelphia. Still, George Washington remained a steadfast supporter of Arnold. Through numerous feuds with other members of the army and Congress, Washington would write to Arnold in encouragement and admiration. However, when Arnold went through a court-martial proceeding, which ended in the decision to deliver a public reprimand, Washington was chosen to carry it out. Being the duty-bound soldier he'd always been, Washington carried out the order calling Arnold's behavior, quote, reprehensible, imprudent, and improper. In return, Arnold became incensed. To him, he had lost one of his only true defenders, and an important one at that. In the past, Washington's endorsements had proven most helpful to Arnold. But now, the general was throwing him under the bus just like everyone else. In response to the reprimand, he fired off a letter to Washington, complaining, quote, Having made every sacrifice of fortune and blood and become a cripple in the service of my country, I little expected to meet the ungrateful returns I have received from my countrymen. He ended the letter by proposing a deal with Washington, writing, quote, If your excellency thinks me criminal, for heaven's sake, let me be immediately tried, and if found guilty, executed. I want no favor. I ask only justice. Washington was surprised by Arnold's indignant reaction, since many believed Arnold had gotten off easy with just a reprimand. But to Arnold, nothing was more important than his reputation. Nevertheless, Washington wrote back, ensuring Arnold that he would give him, quote, 
opportunities of regaining the esteem of your country. Little did Washington know, however, that by that time, Benedict Arnold had already begun a correspondence with Major John Andre of the British Army. In August of 1780, with Arnold too hobbled to lead a regiment, Washington offered him a commanding post at West Point. Just a month later, Washington was on his way to visit West Point to view the improved defenses. He wrote to Arnold that he'd be journeying there in secret. Arnold, now in league with the enemy, passed the information on to the British. However, experiencing one of many lucky strokes, the letter to the British was delayed, likely allowing Washington to escape capture. A few weeks later, Washington and his aides left Fishkill, New York to join Benedict Arnold and his wife Peggy for breakfast. However, when he arrived, Benedict was nowhere to be found and Peggy was bedridden upstairs. Thinking nothing of it, Washington returned to his quarters. Later that evening, his trusted aide Alexander Hamilton came to his room with a number of papers taken from a British soldier named John Andre. They included detailed notes of war council meetings and confidential information about West Point's defenses. The news horrified him and shook him to the core, feeling he could no longer trust anyone if a general as esteemed as Benedict Arnold could deceive him. In the following days, Washington would learn how close he had been to apprehending Arnold, who had learned that his papers were intercepted, fled West Point before Washington could arrive, and headed to New York to join the British. He wrote to Washington, claiming to have acted out of patriotic duty, and asked if Washington would send his trunk of clothes, a request the well-mannered Washington honored. As for Major John Andre, Arnold's accomplice, Washington ordered him hanged as an enemy combatant. The hardened Washington insisted on his decision, even over the protests of Hamilton and Lafayette, who felt Andre acted honorably during his capture. Many of the men in attendance at his hanging openly wept but Washington refused to spare him, either out of his extreme sense of duty or out of the pain and anger he felt from being so thoroughly betrayed. By 1781, with the Southern colonies crackling with military action, Washington and his French allies were ready to put an end to the war. It must have been impossible for him to imagine being in such a position, a middle-class farm boy from rural Virginia whose true passion was surveying land and whose early mistakes sparked the French and Indian War. George Washington had grown into a towering figure in America. There he was, in position to lead the most important revolution in world history against its most powerful empire, stitching together a united nation from a handful of roughly related colonies. 
though he had much to be proud of, to look forward to, and even brag about, his tough upbringing never allowed it. He acted with humility at all times, never overstating his importance to the cause. From a mother's perspective, you can imagine that Mary Washington had a lot to brag about. Surprisingly, though, she did nothing of the sort. Rather than lavish praise on her son, who had outperformed every expectation even his most adoring admirers had for him, she seldom wrote of his successes. As historian Ron Chernow wrote, with more to brag about than any other mother in American history, she took no evident pride in her son's accomplishments. In fact, so hostile was she toward her son's exploits, many of her neighbors believed her to be a Tory. But Washington was not one to fold under the weight of his mother's absent support. In many ways, he had been a self-made man, built up by practice, diligence, and self-discipline, attributes likely imbued in him by his mother's stern and seemingly loveless approach. With or without the pride of his dear mother, though, Washington was about to claim a victory he scarcely could have imagined possible at the outset of the war. In the summer of 1781, after Lafayette, Baron von Steuben, and Mad Anthony Wayne had joined forces to engage British troops, Sir Henry Clinton ordered Lord Cornwallis to establish a fortress in Yorktown, Virginia. In August, Washington and his French allies saw an opportunity to trap Cornwallis as he waited for Clinton's reinforcements. Washington, however, was eager to attack Manhattan in an effort to retake the city. But luckily, he was talked out of it by French commander Rochambeau. Together, they left New York and began their march to Virginia. By September, Washington, leading a huge army of French and American soldiers, surrounded Cornwallis's camp at Yorktown. There, they commenced siege tactics, slowly strangling the British as they waited and waited for their promised 5,000 in reinforcements. Then, in October, after creeping closer and closer to British defenses, Washington ordered the attack. There was no moon in the sky that night, blanketing the battlefield in darkness. Washington, using this cover to aid in his planned surprise attack, also ordered that they use bayonets only, so that the loading of their muskets would not alert the enemy. Once American troops vaulted the British redoubts, a furious bombardment began that lasted nearly three straight days. Cornwallis, out of desperation, had only one last hope to escape. He attempted to evacuate his troops across a nearby river, force their way through the American lines, and escape on foot toward New York. However, a storm hit after just one trip across the river, stopping that plan in its tracks.
the morning of October 17, 1781, two British officers emerged from their damaged barracks. One of them played a marching drum, while the other waved a white handkerchief. Cornwallis had surrendered to Washington. Deliberations began on articles of surrender. The British were taken as prisoners of war, made to lay down their arms, and marched out of Yorktown before a cheering crowd of civilian onlookers. Word was sent to Congress, who celebrated for days when they heard the news. The war was over. George Washington and the Americans had won. However, at the time, there was no indication what the overall British response would be to Cornwallis's surrender. Washington kept his army at the ready in case they had to engage with the British again, who were still occupying Manhattan. Meanwhile, in England, John Jay, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin spent the following two years negotiating with the British over peace terms. In the interim, the American soldiers grew restless. For years, they had to beg Congress for proper pay and adequate supplies. In March of 1783, a secret letter was circulated calling a large group of soldiers to a secret meeting. It looked as if a rebellion or a coup was underway, as the letter encouraged sending Congress an ultimatum. Washington after learning of the meeting, rode out to address the members. He strolled into the tent to the surprise of everyone in attendance, including Horatio Gates, the man who had often been suggested to replace Washington throughout the war. The general asked to address the stunned troops, as Gates, just as shocked as everyone else, relinquished the floor to his commander-in-chief. Washington's speech was short, but impassioned. In regards to the secret letter, he said the plan had, quote, something so shocking in it that humanity revolts at the idea. My God, he exclaimed, what can this writer have in view by recommending such measures? Can he be a friend to the army? Can he be a friend to this country? Rather, is he not an insidious foe? Most memorably, he concluded his address by slowly taking his eyeglasses from his pocket before he read a letter from Congress. As he fumbled with his glasses, he told the men, Gentlemen, you must pardon me, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in service to my country. Some in attendance were so moved by the sight of their stoic commander in such a vulnerable position that they had to wipe tears from their eyes. After he left, vowing to secure their pay and future pensions, the officers in attendance quickly agreed to withdraw their ultimatum 
and offered their unanimous thanks to General Washington, as well as reciprocating, quote, his affectionate expressions with the greatest sincerity of which the human heart is capable. The episode speaks to Washington's true genius. Though he wasn't always the greatest military mind on the battlefield, often making questionable decisions and miscalculations, his true strength lay in his ability to command the respect of those around him. As history professor Michael Haddam wrote, one of his greatest triumphs as a military general came with words rather than bullets or bayonets. On September 3rd, 1783, the team of Adams, Jay, and Franklin secured the signing of the Treaty of Paris, officially ending the American Revolutionary War. Two months later, the British Army evacuated from New York. General George Washington, commander-in-chief of the victorious Continental Army, triumphantly led his troops on a parade into Harlem and through Manhattan to Battery Park, where they were met with adoring crowds, cheering them every step of the way. A month later, at Francis Tavern in Lower Manhattan, which you can visit to this day, Washington held a dinner for his fellow officers. It was a night filled with tearful farewells and loving embraces. For a group of men who had spent every waking moment together for the past eight years, often dodging hails of bullets and cannon fire, side by side. Before those assembled, Washington announced the following. With a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your latter days may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable. He then took the hand of each and every one of his officers and wished them farewell personally. In the aftermath of the war, George Washington wished to live out the rest of his days in peace and solitude at Mount Vernon with his wife, Martha. But as he took in the beauty of that landscape, overlooking the pristine waters of the Potomac River, the members of the United States Constitutional Convention toiled over how the newly independent country should govern itself. After years of disagreement, debate, and compromise, they had come to the realization that there would only be one man up to the task of leading their new nation. To hear how that man was chosen to lead, the perils of that leadership, as well as his presidential legacy, farewell address, and untimely death, tune in next time to part five of George Washington and Rebellion. Rebellion was produced by me, Dustin Connors. To support the show, please give it a rating or write a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
For more on this and other great stories, visit rebellionpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.